Well, hey, have you ever had that moment in your life where you um, are in a situation and you're like, um, what am I even doing here? That's a thought that crosses my mind. Every so often I'll be in a place or I'll have some conversation that's coming up or someone's invited me into something and it has absolutely nothing to do with me. Like I have no contribution here. I can't help you with your problem. I don't know what I'm doing here. And like it's a business meeting or a board meeting and they're talking about this and this and this and you're like, I don't have anything to do with this. What am I doing here? No, no shows of hands, but we've all had moments where you felt like, if I knew what I was doing here, if I knew why I was in the meeting, if I knew why I was here, I might, I might feel a little better. I might be able to participate. I might actually enjoy whatever is happening right now. If you're, um, if you're brand new to church and you've, maybe you've gone to church as a little kid, your aunt or your uncle or your mom or dad brought you when you were little and kind of stopped going, and you came back to church, the idea of spending like 75 minutes on a Sunday is like a, what am I even doing here type of thought, isn't it? Where you're like, why, why would I go back to a place where I'm going to stand and I'm going to sit and I'm going to, someone's going to talk, we're going to sing, we're going to sing, that's so weird, why would I, why would I, what are we even doing? And one of the questions that Psalm 96, which I want you to open to, Psalm 96, one of the questions that Psalm 96 answers for us is this question, super important question. Whether you've been in church for your whole life or you're just coming back to the church uh, after being gone for a while, to know what are we even doing here really helps us out. It helps us relieve the anxiety of, of all of the stress of, of what's happening and what, how does the, what does that have to do with me and what, how am I participating in this? So Psalm, verse, Psalm chapter 96 verse 1 is where we're going to be today. The Psalms give us a clarification of what all of this is like, like, like right here, 11, 12 a.m. in Hobart, Indiana. What is this? What is this right now? Because some of you are like, is this a cult? You sing really loud. What is this? It's Psalm 96, it answers it. It tells us what we are doing. And just to give it to you right from the beginning, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. What we are doing here today, what we do every single week, you want to know something? It actually has very little to do with you. We walk in and we're like, well, what am I going to get out of this? What's going to be for me? How am I going to sing? Are the people going to want Like uh, all these things. And actually, I want you to see this. Psalm 96 shows us what we're doing here. You're irrelevant. Like, like, like it doesn't matter for, for you. What we're doing is we are worshiping a king. That's what we're doing here. We are worshiping a king. And Psalm 96 shows us how to worship a king in case you forgot. So let's read together verse 1. Psalm 96. Would you actually read this together with me? You can stay in your seat, but let's read this together out loud. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Now it's up there three times, and so I, I can't skip over it. Sometimes in scripture, like pastors are famous for being like, that's really confusing or we don't like that, and so we're just going to skip over that part. But I'll agree, three times it's got to be important, right? So we see that word sing. And what are we doing here? Like, well, why do we gather here together on Sunday mornings? Why do we spend like half of our time singing? Well, to worship a king, it means you're going to sing the best songs. What are we doing together as we come together as a church? What are we even doing here? We're singing the best songs. We're singing. Look, it says, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. 
It's commanded by God. He loves to hear his people sing. And I don't pretend to know like what you're thinking, but I would guess for most of us, singing is like the last thought on our minds when the alarm clock goes off on Sunday morning. Like, I don't know, I've never met the person who like comes up to me after church and is like, man, my alarm clock went off this morning and I was like, I get to sing. Like nobody has that reaction. In fact, uh, statistics tell us that if we want to grow the church, we should actually sing less songs. Because singing is, a, is an event that is incredibly weird. Like, it's awkward. It makes us really self-aware. All of a sudden, you're like, I can't carry tune. You want me to sing? And uh, guys tend to have the biggest problem with this. Most men don't at all like to sing. And so, Jeremy, can you sing for us? Prefer not to? Okay, Dan, would you like to sing for us? Uh, no. Uh, no, and Derek, you're a campus elder. Certainly a man of God would sing, but... No. Okay. <laughs> point, point proof. Thank you guys for playing along, some of you. Men will sing at three moments of their life. Three moments. This is, this is it. Um, you'll sing at concerts. Uh, a while back... Kristen and I went to a Garth Brooks concert, which was my, like, what am I doing here moment. What am I doing at Garth Brooks? This is weird. I don't like country music. And I was shocked at all the um, suburban Chicago men wearing their cowboy hats at the Allstate Arena singing with their hands in the air. I got friends in low. Like, you'll get down with Garth, but, but then come, come on a Sunday, and you're like, oh, people might hear me. They might hear my voice. I don't know if I want. It's the second time a man will sing is uh, the national anthem at a baseball game. Right? Isn't that true? So many of our friends and our family members, even some of you, have served dutifully and sacrificially to honor America and advance the cause of our country. And so when that, da, 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 like something in you just like, oh, oh, say can you say, like you become like that guy at the Blackhawks game. You're just like, you, you, you have the loudest voice, you'll sing. And have your kid turn one at a birthday party. And out comes the cake. And all of a sudden, you're a regular old Sinatra. But come together for a meeting where half of the agenda is to sing. And all of a sudden, we're like, I, don't, I actually don't do that. Um, it's good for everybody else, but I just, I don't, I don't do that. So what are we doing here? How, how do we worship a king? L- listen, listen. It's going to take your voice. You worship the king by singing the best songs. Why music? Why music? Why do we sing? Why did God create us as, as people to have this emotional response to music? Well, um, all throughout our history, we have been a musical people. God created Adam and Eve in the garden, and all of a sudden, the birth of R&B happened. Adam sings a song over his new wife. He sings, at last, my love has come along. It's in the text. It's in the Hebrew. And the Israelites, they escape slavery in, in Egypt. They sing songs. God 
himself sings. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to say, and he will rejoice over you with singing. Our God sings. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he sang a hymn with his disciples. And Paul, he commands the, 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 the church. He says, when you gather together, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and monster one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart to God. It is just in us, it is the way we are made to sing back to God. And so here's what we do on a, on a Sunday morning is we gather together as the assembled collective body of Christ and we sing. And look at the songs that we're supposed to sing. It says, sing to the Lord a new song, a new song. Let me help you with that because this has been the source of much controversy in the church. I like to sing those old songs, that old time religion. Other people are like, no, 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 if it's not fresh, if it's not today, I don't want to hear it. And I think that totally misses the point. That whole discussion of like how old a song has to be for the church to consider it a new song totally misses the point. When God says, sing to the Lord a new song, he's invariably saying, come together and sing what God is doing in your midst today in a way that seems fresh, in a way that seems current. I can illustrate to you this way. Uh, my wife, Chris, and I, we dated, uh, well, it feels like a long time ago, like almost a decade now, back in our 20s. Man, we're so old. So when we're dating, uh, music played like a role in our relationship. You know, you, you played one in yours too. You may have made like a mixtape or like called your DJ and said, hey, could you play this song for my girl? And uh, music just, it's a part of what we do in romance. And so the first song I remember that ever like really truly encapsulated our relationship was that song, that classic from like two years ago. Hey, I just met you and this is crazy, but here's my number and call me. So you're welcome for getting that stuck in your head. But as our relationship started to grow and develop and mature and, and, and to actually have like grit and, and, and true romance, I, I found the songs that Chris and I related to, they weren't like the cheesy pop songs. They were like Sinatra songs. They were like Ella Fitzgerald. It was, it was like, I've got sunshine, right? On a cloudy day. Like that was the song. And let me ask you a question. Is that a new song? No. But it was an old song for a new moment, sung in the right way, which became new. And that's what God's going at. He doesn't care like if we have people in the corners of our church scribbling out new ways to say things or not. We definitely should write new music, absolutely. But, but the point is this, is that we should sing songs that, that relate to the way God is at work in our community. Which is why we here at Bethel, we spend a lot of time picking music that talks about our salvation and the way that God has shaped us and changed us in the life-transforming work of God in our lives. This is why we pick songs and say, I believe in you. I, right now, believe you rose again. This is what you're doing in my life, God, is that you're helping me come to faith. And we sing it back to God. When we sing these songs in a way that our heart relates to what he's doing in our life, the Bible calls it a new song. It's like, what the Bible says in Lamentations about God's mercy. You, you might know the verse, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to the end. They are new every morning. Now, y'all know that God's mercy doesn't change, right? It's not actually new. 
It's the way that it is expressed. It's the way that you experience his mercy, which feels totally new in your life. So when we come in here on a Sunday morning, ramped up, ready to sing to our awesome king, we do so proclaiming songs that have a sense of freshness to him, saying, God, I see my life in these words. I see what you're doing in my life through that. That's what makes it the best song. The best songs are the songs that we sing from a place of honesty, that we sing together. Notice verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. All the earth, which means this is an invitation of the chorus of humanity to join together as one. All the earth, sing. And no one's going to stop you from driving your your car down I-65 with the radio cranked to a hundred singing worship songs. But that is not a substitute for what Psalm 96 is talking about in worship. For us to all the earth sing means that we must be coming here together to sing. We must be invested in this as a community. You know, I love our worship team. They, they always do a great job. But imagine that they were the only people here on a Sunday morning if God would be honored by the praise of his people. The obvious answer is no. And likewise, we think if, if all of us came together and we wanted to sing but no one was here to lead us, Would we sing? And the answer is no. See, God is pleased when all the earth, from the stage and the seats, join together as one to proclaim and make famous our God. Which answers the question why in this age of technology that I can podcast my favorite pastor and listen to my favorite worship music and watch my favorite church's service online. Why why aren't those viable options for worship? The answer is because God does something in the assembled corporate body where his people gather to sing. So we come together, all the earth. Why? Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name. The best songs are the songs where we sing it from a place of honesty, when we sing them all together and we sing them to give God all the honor and all the glory and to say, you are the king. And so what are we doing here? We're showing up on Sundays ready to belt out songs of praise and gratitude for what God is doing in our lives. We're joining our voice to the voices of others who have seen God's faithful hand at work in their life. Whether it was a good week or not, they come in saying, God, in the midst of all this, I recognize that you are worthy of my praise. And we make him famous. This is not a message on singing. Some of you are like, thank the Lord. But before I move on to the next, next couple of verses, I, I, I pastorally feel a sense of like obligation to talk about this for a second. Um, When we sing the best songs, I think we should sing them in the best way. I can't prove this from the text, at least this text. I can use other ones to say this. But um, there there are places in the Bible where it says how we should sing. With a loud voice, with the clanging of cymbals, with the harp and the lyre. And we don't have a lyre, so it's a guitar. uh, but, 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 But then it also says, like, you should raise your hands. And that makes some people really uncomfortable. Because um, most of us were raised in, like, conservative churches where it's like, Worship didn't even have music with it. You just sang the hymnal. And yet, if we're going to sing the best songs to our God, we should sing it in the best way. The best way being my body actively engaged in what God is doing and what I am proclaiming. If you believe that Jesus rose again, I don't think that this is the appropriate posture for saying that. 
for some of us, we need to raise our hands. And this is, this is your pastoral permission right here. Raising your hands for some of you, actually I'd say most of you, is going to be simply this. I'll call that raising your hands. I'll call, I don't want to be legalistic, but I'll call it that. For some of you, 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 you're like, this is as high as they get. No more. Some of you just get a better deodorant and, and just all out. See, see I, I stand here and I don't want to make too much of myself, but I, I, I've been so moved by God in worship and I, I, I want to so express to God my love for him that you see me over here sometimes and it's just like, God, I want to touch heaven when I sing. Like, I want, I want to feel near you. I want you to know, God, I believe this. This is, this is me, my full force of my life is just declaring these truths. And I'm not saying you need to do that. Please, this is not that type of church. But could you sing in a way where you're engaged? Like, maybe we give you coffee, just put it down. You know, and, and, and take a step to say, God, I want you to have all of my attention right now. Okay, that's my little rant. My soapbox is over. I'll never get a chance to say that again, so thanks for enduring it. Let's move on. What are we doing here? We're worshiping the king with the best songs. And look at this, verse 2 again. It says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. For he is a, to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So what are we doing here? We're singing the best songs, but, but notice what verse 2 through 6 tells us. It says, we're preaching the best Savior. Tell of his salvation from day to day, his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. The psalmist has moved us in verses 1 and 2 from this whole sing to the Lord up to God to this really horizontal to each other. Let, let's talk about God. Let's, let's talk about his salvation. Let's talk about his works among us. And certainly every week we gather together under the authority of God's word and someone's going to stand on a stage or on a screen and preach God's word faithfully to us. This is part of what it means for us to be a church is that we preach Christ crucified. So we are committed as a church to open up God's word and seeing what it has to say for our salvation. But there's this idea that exists in some churches that the only reason that we sing is to help the preacher preach better. Like, like if we were to order these songs in such a way that people kind of thought this way and felt this way about the service, by the time we get to the preaching, they're going to be good and ready to hear a message. And can I just tell you that that is the absolute opposite of my life's goal. I feel God has strongly called me to preach his word with my life. And, and as a part of that, my passion is not just to get you all slicked up for a message, but to help preach in such a way where you become better worshipers. I want to totally flip it. I want you to know that, that our passion here at Bethel Church, whether it's Steve or me or any of the pastors that come, is to preach the best Savior in such a way that you will have no other option but to join just riotous worship in his name. That you cannot be compelled just to sing about how great he is, to see the marvelous works of what he's done in your life. We, we preach so that we worship. That's what we do. And, and notice, we're to preach the best Savior. We should preach the best Savior. It's a little offensive here in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. The psalmist really takes a, a little bit of a turn. He says, 
For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That's a little offensive, huh? It's a little exclusive. It's a little superior. It's a little uh, belittling of everybody else's religion. And um, can I teach you a little, a little Hebrew for a second? Can we just... Isn't it great you can show up to church and learn, like, something once or twice? Like, it's kind of nice to come and hear a message and, like, be encouraged and inspired. But also, like, maybe learn something you won't ever learn. Like, uh, you're not going to hear Hebrew on the daily news. So let's do it. Y'all ready? You're like, I don't know, Dan. This sounds really weird. If you want to talk about God in the Hebrew language, you have three options. Three words that you can use to describe God. The first is the word Elohim. Would you say that with me? Elohim. Elohim is really just the -the run-of-the-mill way that we talk about gods. A God, the God, Elohim. It really doesn't determine who God, which God it is. It's just a God, Elohim. Elohim is the most generic form of God. If you want to be a little bit more particular about a God that you worship and you serve, you could use the word Adonai. Say that with me. Adonai. Adonai. Adonai carries with it this kingly sort of idea, this, this sovereignty and majesty. Adonai, and certainly our God is worthy to be called our Adonai, our Lord. But if you want to be incredibly particular, if you want to be so specific to talk about the one God that you are referring to, the God of the Bible, the God of the Israelites, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we worship to and we serve, he, he revealed his name to Moses in Exodus to say, I am Yahweh. Say that with me. Yahweh. It's the most particular focused name that refers to God's covenant and his, 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 his giving of love and life to his people and the promise that he would always give love and life to his people. Now I tell you all of that to say this. Look at verse 4. It says, for great is the Lord. Great is Yahweh is what the Hebrew says. And greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all Elohim, God's. For all the Elohim of the people are worthless idols, which ironically, the word worthless idols is Elilim. In the Hebrew, it says Elohim, Elilim. It's a play on words to help you remember. Elilim means no thing, nothing, dust. All the gods of the world are just... But Yahweh made the heavens. Like, that's the closest you get in Hebrew poetry to a mic drop. <laughs> and I could nerd out on this verse for a second on the structure and its style and, and, and all the words that it uses, but I want you just to get this main point. Of all the gods in this world where there are many, only one rules and reigns supreme, and his name is Yahweh. He's the Lord God, and he's so great that he created the heavens. So many people think that uh, like their God is influential or their God or their thoughts or their thing. It's, it's, it's what has brought about our type of civilization, our, t- our type of world. I'm sure there are even people thinking that they created the earth. I'm sure Al Gore is out there somewhere trying to say that. And so the psalmist doesn't just say, the Lord God created stuff. The Lord God created man. It goes straight to the point. Nobody tries to create heaven. But our God has created earth and all that dwells in it and heaven, which is his home. We have the highest Savior of all. And that's what we preach. What are we doing here? We're preaching the fact that Jesus Christ is the greatest Savior. This world has a lot of 
worthless idols, a lot of Elohim, Elilim today, and it always has. Whatever pop culture, conventional wisdom, current pressure in society is pushing on us, we worship the God that makes us money or the God that will help us lose weight or the God that will get us a spouse or the God that will help us raise successful children or even trying to find the right special substance to make us feel the right special way. We even try and find our gods in our political rulers and our hearts are often drawn to this Elohim, Elilim, to lesser gods. And what we are doing here today as we gather together, the psalm reminds us that we gather together to put to death the things that are worthless among us and to lift up to his rightful place the king of our hearts, King Jesus, and to say that above all the gods in this world, only you are the God who is my savior. Only you are the God who will sustain. You are great, greatly to be praised. Have you ever noticed that our presidents have not been able to make us a better country? And I don't say that against our current administration. I just Let's pick Abraham Lincoln for a hypothetical situation. Everybody in favor of Abraham Lincoln being a good president? History will judge him that way. Uh, after... Years after Abraham Lincoln's presidency, do we have a perfect nation? The answer is no. It's okay. We love America. But is it perfect? No. And if we put our trust and our hope in human institutions and in human positions, we will be let down every single time. And some of you are single, and you've been single for a while, and you're trying like mad to just feel like a whole person. There's that lie that you feel. You need to be a whole person. You need to have somebody else. And all of a sudden, your God, your worthless idol, to call it what it is, has become this idea of somebody else in the future who will value me for who I am and appreciate me for all my good qualities and take care of me and spend time with me and laugh at me and give all, my, all their attention to me. And you know that person doesn't exist, right? Someone give me an Amen. You have to hear that. You have to remember that's, that, is, that is the current thought of the day that I deserve this, that I need. And, and if you were to actually put all of your hope in finding that perfect person, you are crushing your future spouse with a weight that they don't, they haven't been designed to handle. Your expectations upon their life for what they will do for you will absolutely ruin your relationship and your view of them. Only Jesus can handle the weight of our sin and our expectations. Only Jesus can be found to handle all of ours, not just mine, but all of us here and all of his believers throughout the world, all of our hopes and dreams and ambitions and desires and deceit and sin can be heaped upon his broad shoulders because he is the only great Savior. Until you find him, you have, you have nothing. You have Elohim, Elilim. So what are we doing? We're singing the best songs. We're, we're preaching the best Savior. And look at this. Look at, look at verse 7. We're just getting warmed up here. Verse 7. We're giving the best gift. We're giving the best gift. Look at it with me. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness and tremble before him all the earth. What are we doing here? We're, we're, we're giving God the best gifts. 
Three times again, we have that repetition, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. And so we can't actually gloss over it. We have to understand what are, what are we actually being commanded here? To ascribe to someone is actually to give them a title, to, to give them glory. So when it says ascribe, it says, give glory to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give, give the Lord the glory and strength due his name. Which for all of us here, that seems awesome. Like we want God to have the glory. We want to give him the glory fitting for his greatness and his majesty. That's the essence behind what it means to give the best gift is, is to bring our praise and our worship. And we're ascribing to the Lord the credit and the glory that he deserves for who he is. But doesn't that seem a little cheap? Like, talk is cheap, right? Can I get an amen? Talk is cheap. Lip service kind of falls short. And as we come together and as we lift up to God the glory due his name, how are we to judge whether or not you are actually in your heart giving God glory or not with your lips? How do, I, how do we know it's not just some going through the motions that you that, you, uh, that you're going through. And, and quite honestly, the answer is, we don't. And that's not our place. And I'll never be that guy who's like, I don't believe your heart's in it. That's not the type of church we are. But if you come here and you bring a gift of half-hearted praise to the Lord, do you know who knows? The one whom you can't fool. And listen, I'm happy to play your fool all day long. I believe the best in you. I want to, as your pastor, believe that you can take steps forward in Christ. And I want to believe that and, and pray that into your life. But, but you know what? As much as I believe that and as much as you try and convince me, if you do not actually give your best to God, you're fooling no one. To bring, to ascribe, it means, it means God, I'm coming in and I'm going to give you my best gift. And do you know what your best gift is? The best gift that each one of us has is not our money. It's not even our, our, our songs. It's our presence. For you to take time out of your calendar, out of your busy life, to set aside, to, to dedicate, to devote, the old, uh, old Testament would say, to devote your time to the Lord and to come in on a Sunday morning and to know that there's a million things in your life going around and like maybe you don't have the backpack all ready for kids this week and maybe you're a teacher and the bulletin boards aren't up and you got all these things just running through your mind. But, but, but to devote time and to say, no, 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 God deserves this. I'm going to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name by giving him the best gift of my presence in his house. And I will show up to let everyone know that I believe in God and I love God and I, he has my whole heart. I believe God, I believe God is so honored in that. I remember so clearly, I was, um, I was 20, so a decade ago, again, how old am I? I was staying with my grandparents out in Nebraska, and my, grand, my grandpa was a pastor, and we had arranged our time uh, when we were out there, it was going to fall over a weekend, and so we said, well, we'll go to church with grandma and grandpa, we'll go see their church, and uh, it's like 20 minutes away from their house, and so uh, service was at 10 o'clock. Being a 20-year-old man, I woke up at 9, because that's what you do when you're 20, and I Literally, like, threw on clothes, and I was ready. Like, 9.15, I'm done eating breakfast, and I remember my grandfather is, like, pacing around the house. He's just doing this. He's pacing, he's pacing, he's pacing. He comes up to me, and he goes, aren't other people coming with us today? I said, yeah, Grandpa, sir, we don't have to leave for, like, another half hour. It'll be totally fine. Like, we'll be good. 
And he goes, oh, okay. And he walks back in the other room, and he's, like, really anxious moving. I, I hear him, like, moving plates around, but he's not, like, doing it. He's just moving things, just trying to keep himself busy. Comes back two minutes later, looks at his watch, and he goes, um, aren't we going to go? Well, why isn't anybody ready? And I thought, my goodness, my grandpa's losing it. I said, Grandpa, it's okay. They're, the ladies need to do their hair, you know what I mean? Like, it takes a little more time. And he's like, oh, right, right, right. And he goes back and does his things and comes back two more minutes later. It's, it's, it's 9.19. And I remember him just standing, arms slouched over, saying, is there anything more important than worship? And as a 20-year-old, I welcomed that wisdom into my life. To know, God, there's nothing greater than being in your house with your people. It is good and holy to, to, to worry about making it to your house, to set aside time for my schedule, to have an awkward conversation with my boss at work, to say, hey, this is really important to me and I need to have these hours off because I need to go to church. Or, 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 you know, we don't do a Saturday service, so God forbid you work Sundays, but you need to find a church that does Saturday services so that you can go be in God's house on a consistent basis to give him the glory that he deserves. And my grandfather has been to more church services than probably all of us combined. And I can't help but think how honored the Lord was that day when he shuffled through those doors of that church to hear songs of praise from my grandfather's mouth because he wanted to give God glory. And listen, so many of you are just like that as well. You've had a heck of a week. And you come crawling through these doors to this auditorium week after week Worried about the finances, worried about the things that are pending, worried about, I just had a lady show me that she's had legal action up against her and worried about all these things and, and, and is worried. And to come here together to sing the best songs and to preach the best Savior and to give God the best gift of our presence in his house. It does his heart good and his name is renowned. But check this out too. Giving the best gifts takes two parts. Look at verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. You are hoping I'd skip that, weren't you? You're like, I see it, but he's not going to talk about it. And we're going to talk about it. Bring an offering and come into his courts. So if that word ascribe means to give, that word bring means to bring. <laughs> Like, along with you. Like, it should come with you to see the king. Like, you can't say, like, oh, I'm going to take a picture of this thing that I got you, and I'll give it to you later. No, no, it's like, it's, it's to present to a king a gift that declares we are all better people in your kingdom because of you. That's the essence of what you bring to a king. That's the essence of the gifts that you bring to a king. To say, because you're our king, we have success and we have wealth. I mean, I can show it to you this way. You hear on the news sometimes of the president going overseas to meet with foreign dignitaries, and oftentimes there are gifts that are exchanged. These gifts could be really awesome. In 1880, Rutherford B. Hayes was given a, a, a desk by uh, Queen Victoria. It was a desk that was made out of some old wood from the HMS, uh, I got it written down, I forgot, the Resolute. And it's carved out of, out of wood from this, and it is this gorgeous desk. And ever since 1880, when Rutherford B. Hayes got that desk, presidents have sat at that desk. That was a gift from the Queen of England. Um, 
Recently, uh, President Obama got some really strange gifts. Uh, when he went just a couple of years ago to London, he got this gift from, uh, from the David Cameron, the Prime Minister of, of England. Good gift? Ping pong? I think he got to keep the table and the paddles, and I think he got beat by a bunch of uh, college kids. Uh, but good, good gift, right? Um, he also got some weird gifts. Uh, take, a, take a look on his face when he was getting this gift. It's like, oh, cool. A basketball. Thanks, guys. And I wonder if some of our gifts to our king make his face go like that. And we bring our gift and we don't bring the gift that is worthy of the honor to his name. Show up to the president's house with a board game of Monopoly and say, here, here's some board games. Be like, what? Should I be getting jewels? Should I be getting like, like, Saudi Arabia gave President Bush 300 pounds of, of, of goat. That seems kingly. A basketball? I don't want to make too much out of this because everybody listen. Look, look up here. Um, our church is financially solvent. Praise God. We're not locking the doors. We're not going to pass the plates. We, we really actually right now, we don't need your money. Like, it's Okay. But you want to worship your king in a way that gives him honor and glory? You bring an offering to his courts. It's not a tax. It's not a tithe. It's an offering to say, God, I recognize that all things are yours in the first place. And so, so you can have this. Because you're my king, I know you're taking care of me. And so here, this, this, is, this is the best I can do. This is why that, that widow in the temple, when Jesus is watching people put money in the depository, rich people come in and throw their sums of money in there, but a, a little widow gives only two pennies, all that she had to live on. And Jesus says, her gift makes me look like the best king because she gave the best gifts. The best gifts in scripture are always the first and the best. God, desire, God deserves our first and God deserves our best. You remember back to the beginning, that, that story of, of Cain and Abel. These two brothers of Adam and Eve, and, and, and the world is kind of in chaos. And Cain and Abel, one's a farmer, Cain's a farmer, and, and Abel's a shepherd. He's keeping sheep. And Cain brings grain to the Lord and sacrifices it to him. And Abel brings uh, the firstborn of his flock, the very firstborn of his flock, as well as some of the most choice meats. I'm talking like thick-cut apple-smoked bacon. You with me? He brings them to the Lord. And scripture says that God had reverence and respect for Abel's offering, but for Cain's, he did not care. Why? Because Abel gave God his first and his best. And I hesitate to even talk about this because I don't want to imply that this is how you have to run your financial household like, like Kristen and I do. But this principle has inspired us to give online. Because... I get paid on Fridays, and I can automatically set up that on Friday, the first transaction of the day is that my paycheck, a portion of it goes to God, that I can give him the first and the best. And every time I scroll through my list in my checking account of what I've paid for, I'm reminded when I see, I mean, it goes to Bethel Church because that's our local church right now. I believe that's where the tithe goes. And that's another, another day. But it goes to Bethel Church, and when I see that, I go, God, thank you for being my king. Because you deserve the first and you deserve the best. You can bring your offering here and you, that's all fine. That's not the point. But I want you to have that attitude to say, God, you deserve the best. You deserve the first. Amen?
What are we doing here? We're singing the best songs. We're preaching the best Savior. We're giving the best gifts. That's why we pass an offering basket down the road so we can give God our tithes and our offerings. But then we have this last thing, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge these peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all that fills it. Let the fields exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge in the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Again, verse 10 tells us, declare to the nations, the Lord reigns. Preach him the best Savior, the creator over all. But I want to draw your attention to what happens at the end of verse 10. Verse 10, the focus totally changes from the past and the present to the future. So the Lord reigns currently. The world is established currently. It shall never be moved. He will future. He will judge the peoples with equity. And I want to say it this way. I want you to know, what are we doing here? We are celebrating the best future. And just hang on for just a moment because if you're sitting in the seats and you're like, God's going to judge the world and that's the best future, you're like, well, how does that work? Well, it works amazingly. Let me help you, let me help you with it. We live in a day and age where our leaders do not judge with equity. Thankfully, in America, we have a great judicial system for the most part. But, but typically speaking, we don't live in an age where there's equity in judicial systems. And that was definitely true of the time when this psalm was penned. Back then, uh, kings practiced the role of judge and arbiters of disputes. And so here's how it worked. If you were someone of low class in society and someone of a higher class in society came and stole your property or robbed your business or took your money, you had two options. You could either fight that guy or you could try and take him to the king and get back what is rightfully yours. But do you know what's the problem with people in high society? Typically, they're like this with the king. So you could bring as a poor person your case before the king and say, hey, this guy did this thing to my business and then my family. And oftentimes the king would say, yeah, yeah, I hear you. But actually this guy over here, he's got a better track record than you do. So I'm going to side in his favor. And injustice abounded all throughout the kingdoms. This is what it meant to be a king was to have unilateral decisions that affected people. So injustice was just a way of life and the poor people could never advance and the rich people ruled with tyranny. And we also, I think, live in a day of continual poor governance. It's a fact of the world, not America, of the world. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I watch the news and I think about what's happening in North Korea and I can't help but feel sadness for the people that live in North Korea. And I can't help but feel fear for the people of Guam. And I can't help but feel confusion for the people of South America. And quite honestly, I have no idea how to feel for us in America. Like, should I go to Walmart and get my bunker stockpiled? Should I just not worry about it? And when we celebrate the best future, here's what's happening. In the midst of all of our poor governance and all the tensions around the world and all of the crises that are happening, we come to verse 10. We read, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Like, put to death your fears. God is in control. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so like the world may be in tension and turmoil, but God is actively currently reigning in the midst of it all. He established the earth and he's not going to move it. And check this out. He's so in control that one day he's going to come back and he's going to judge the people with fairness. It's a world where, 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 where complete justice happens. And you're like, why is that a good thing? Judgment sounds like God's wrath. Like in our Bibles, we want to scratch that out and like hide that from the world like God's a judge. Well, not that part. Don't talk about that. Talk about love. Talk about God being a good God, a loving God. But why judgment? Judgment's weird. Judgment's hard. Judgment's scary. Judgment's Armageddon. And I think Christians forget that our judgment has been paid by Jesus Christ. You don't have to be afraid of the return of the Lord. Do you know why? Because so many years ago, God came to this world in the person of Jesus. And he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. And the entirety of God's wrath was poured out among Christ. And as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Absorbing the penalty and the, and the stain of sin for us, the curse that we had. And so today, friends, you and I can sing, my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus, my Savior, the best Savior spilled. Which means, when God comes to bring about his judgment in righteousness and faithfulness, he's not coming with a, 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 a hammer or a nuke. God is coming to establish his perfect governance and administration. And if you don't think our God could rule this world better than we're doing it, you're sorely mistaken on who our God is. Our God's the type of God who has an idea and says, well, I'm going to create the world. And so he speaks and pff, world. I was joking with uh, Mayor Brian Snedeker last week about driving through Hobart. And we love May the mayor. He's a wonderful guy. We, we love what he's doing for Hobart. But at some point, there was like this idea of like, we should fix the roads in Hobart. And now it takes us like 20 minutes to get from one side of the town to the other. And like we long for this day of perfect governance, this perfect administration, of, of perfect God saying, and it is. We long for the day when, when, when not only humanity is restored, but also creation is restored. Let the heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, the sea roar, the fields exult, all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. What are we doing here? We're reminding each other in the midst of our daily lives that God is coming again and our best future is not behind us, it's in front of us. That the best is yet to come. We gather together on a weekly basis because we're so frail of people, we have to be reminded of this. Man, I get beat down by life. I get beat down by the things that are going on, by the problems in, in, in life and in our church and in the world and, and I have to come. I have to come back into this place on a weekly basis to be reminded that no matter how bad I think it is, the best is still coming. And no matter how good my week was, that is not the pinnacle. It gets better. It gets better. And when we remember that it gets better, we sing songs of hope as people who are redeemed. And we sing songs of hope from people who have been saved. And we give to God the gifts that declare the glory of his name. Let's pray. God. We come before you as people who want to give you our best. God, as we come into this space every single week and we gather together as your people, there's so much that is a part of this, but God, at the core, we come to worship you as our king. So help us to grow in this as a church, God. Help us as a, as a campus here to worship you loudly, 
to give you our attention and our time, to let your word dwell in us and convict us and change us as your spirit is among us here moving in power. God, as we even come and trust you with our resources and our time, we know, Lord, that you will provide for our needs. And we're grateful that you are our king and you do so. But above all, God, we pray for that day when you will come again. Thank you that we don't have to fear your judgment, but that it means that ultimately your perfect kingdom will be established the way it was supposed to be. All this we're grateful for and we lift up to you and our precious holy God. It's in your name we pray.